Holy cow! How about that? Hey, a line drive off the pitcher's game is over. Good night. This is the Pop Culture Club. I am Jim Laskowski, and wow, um, there's so much to say right now about what's going on in the city of Chicago. And as far as I'm concerned, it's um, one of the highlights of my life thus far was being able to witness this incredible moment in sports history, possibly the greatest achievement in all of Chicago sports, and that would be the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series after 108 years. That is one hell of a drought. And I, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest sports guy. I'm not, I'm not Mr. Stats. I'm not Mr. You know, follow a certain team just because I have an allegiance. I'm more of a casual spectator and I get caught up in the mayhem, the fever of any sort of, um, I don't know. It's not, I can't really say that's a hundred percent true because of things like American Idol and the voice or dancing with the stars. I have a complete disengagement with that in particular, but as my friend Patrick mentioned, I, I, I don't know how it happened, but I, I did get into the bachelor and it's really, really not something I'm proud of. <laughs> but, hey, we all have those weird outliers in our viewing experiences that we may not be proud of, but they've happened. We have to own up to them. But, you know, for me, Chicago Cubs baseball has come with a lot of baggage, per se, because I remember walking out of a Smoking Pope's concert uh, at the Metro, and... You know, I I walked out and there were a a bunch of drunken buffoons everywhere. And they all happened to be wearing Cubs hats or Cubs shirts. And the North Side in Wrigleyville just has this reputation of, you know, these sort of meatheads wandering around and, uh, you know, acting buffoonish. So that's kind of what I experienced um, quite a bit. But it never really deterred me from any opportunity to see a game. If somebody handed me an extra ticket to a Cubs game, I was there. I would enjoy myself. Sure, there were you know a bunch of drunken jerks there, but I don't necessarily like to ascribe a personality behavior to a certain group because I'm sure there are dozens of Chicago White Sox fans that happen to be drunken jerks on a regular basis at those games. 
So, you know, it's not to say like, oh my god, elitism and the Chicago Cubs, or the Chicago Cubs versus the White Sox, that's what it's all about in the city, because for me it's not, it's about supporting the city, supporting um, a community of people that maybe I don't necessarily hang out with, or even uh, join on a regular basis, but I get really into when a team is doing good, especially when they've been underdogs for a while. I got into the Bulls. I certainly watched some Blackhawks games. And when the Bears shockingly do well, I, I, I enjoy those moments. And it really does speak to a place of nostalgia for certain because I watched a lot of sporting events with family members who are no longer here, including my dad. But, you know, again, he was a loyal Sox fan that would, you know, I I don't know, out of necessarily like a rebellion, but everybody else in the family was a Cubs fan. And maybe there was this rebellious streak in him to say, well, if everybody else is a Cubs fan, I'm going to be a Sox fan. Um, But I don't know the specifics behind that. It's more just, I really loved going to baseball games with my dad, mostly Sox games. We didn't go to a couple Cubs games, but I don't remember him being too pleased. I just recall vividly seeing some wonderful games, catching a fly ball, and, you know, just generally having a good time with my dad. Now, are you going to see me uh, playing golf or going to NASCAR racing? No. There were certain things that my dad was into that I will absolutely not transition over into and suddenly wake up and go, oh my god, this is the greatest thing, and I love it, and I want to be involved with it, and I want to go to the Indy 500 or whatever. That's not me. What... I'm into is just the spirit of the sport, and anytime I've seen a movie involving baseball, I get I get swept up, and the Cubs really were a fantastic team through and through, through the entire World Series and through the playoffs, and you know, I, I had the pleasure of going to a game in the midst of all this, and I, could, I, I finally understood, well, this is why it's so infectious. This is why people dedicate themselves to the sport, to an athletic sport, in the same way that I think I dedicated myself to film and music. Those are very different things, but, you know, the the level of fandom I experience at, like, the music box of horrors is not unlike going to a Cubs game or sitting at a bar, you know, in the Ukrainian village last night watching the World Series final game and high-fiving strangers, screaming and laughing biting nails on the edge of our seats, dead moments of silence. It was unbelievable. It was just like going to a profoundly moving movie. So let's get to this now that I've, of course, gone on record to say, yes, I do like the Chicago Cubs, and I'm very proud of them, and I'm very happy. And I think it's a good segue into my first guest for this Pop Culture Club episode. He is none other than John McNaughton, who first got his start with a film that I saw at a very young age that scarred me for life, that I recently rewatched and kind of went, yeah, it's a very good film, but I'm not as terrified. Maybe it is desensitized um, kind of effect, but at the same time, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable independent film that really gets under your skin, that showcases just like the, the, the dread and, and the tension and the dark uh, side of human nature 
through the eyes, for the most part, of a character named Henry, who was modeled after Henry Lee Lucas and just his dead cold personality. And, you know, it's really interesting. Michael Rooker's performance, if you've seen the film, you know how it, it kind of defined him for the rest of his career. If you see a movie with him in it, sometimes you kind of you're kind of prone to go, well, he must be the bad guy. He must be the villain. He must be the killer. But, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the entire cast here is pretty pretty special. And the score is really eerie. The Chicago locations. I mean, everything about Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is kind of special in its own right. Even if it doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks like it did for me when I was a, a young adult, a pre-adolescent around the age of 12, I think. Yeah, 12 was kind of a big year for seeing a lot of films that I shouldn't have seen. But Henry Portrait of a Killer sort of stands out as one of those based on a particular sequence that if you know the film, you know what I'm talking about. And I bring it up here with the director, John McNaughton, who's done films such as Normal Life, Wild Things. Um, of course, he did the The Harvest fairly recently. And, you know, he's, he's he did a movie called Mad Dog and Glory where Robert De Niro and Bill Murray sort of play against type that I really enjoyed. Um, he's, he's had a couple of films, like Speaking of Sex, that may not have struck a chord or maybe have been sub- subjected to studio interference. I'm not sure. But, and the same kind of goes for, with The Borrower. I don't know if we're going to see a full release for that, and I forgot to ask him that question. Sorry again, Patrick, but... I'm really thrilled for things that are about to take place within Pop Culture Club. Not just this episode, but stay tuned for some news to come after Thanksgiving. There's going to be an announcement about where the show is going, what I'm going to be up to. Um, I won't be just like waiting until the end of the year to make a, a full-blown announcement. I'm waiting until the end of this month. For now... Thank you so much for subscribing and listening, and you've got one heck of an episode here in store for you featuring three directors. Well, let's say four. What the hell? Because um, in addition to John McNaughton, you're going to be hearing from Courtney Hunt, who directed The Whole Truth with Keanu Reeves, a very solid courtroom drama, as well as the duo team behind Trolls, the latest DreamWorks animated production that is quite charming in its own right. I, uh, I, I cracked many smiles and enjoyed the music. That's what I'll say about Trolls, and you'll hear quite an enthusiastic interview to end this episode, and I hope you enjoy it all. Let's start with the director of Henry Porter a Serial Killer. I almost sounded like the um, movie phone guy there for a second. If you know the name of the movie you'd like to see, press 1. Let's start with the director of Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, rated R. John McNaughton, enjoy. Don't do that, Otis. She's your sister. I feel like I know you. Like like I've known you for a long time. I feel like I've known you forever and ever. It's like the blood droppings from a deer you shot. And all they gotta do is follow those droppings and... Uh, Pretty soon they're gonna find that deer. I interrupted this man. What do you do? I'll see it again. So I had seen a lot of horror movies by the time I was 12. <laughs> 
And yeah. ones that <laughs> so stood out, yeah, ones that <laughs> stood out for me were you know the, the more popular ones like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Exorcist. But then it was in 1990 that I heard WGN's Nick DiGiulio put a film in his top ten list that I had never heard of before, and it was called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Cut to months later when my parents were sound asleep, um, I turned turned on cable TV downstairs in the basement and saw that Henry was about to come on at one in the morning. I sat there completely horrified and transfixed at the same time, and it may have been one of the first films that caused me to rethink what the horror genre could be, because Henry was not a boogeyman or a pinhead. Nope. <laughs> this was a psychopath with no empathy, and the home invasion sequence shot on a camcorder, similar to the one that my family owned, um, I'm so creeped out by that entire sequence and the idea of two men sitting together rewatching that murder scene like it was a wedding video or pornography. And driving down Lower Wacker Drive will never be the same for me. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, they changed. You know, they 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 swapped out the green lights. It's no longer. I mean, they that's city true. of Chicago lit that street for us perfectly with those green fluorescent bulbs back in the day. So right, right. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm pleased to welcome to the show co-writer and director of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and many great films, Mr. John McNaughton. Hi, John. How you doing? Excellent, excellent. So yeah, um, you know, got to give credit to Nick DiGiulio who has championed your films for years now. To where I would actively seek them out, even if they were hard to find. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the performances and the way you shot Henry make it feel so real while you're watching it, and it feels like a home video, obviously from you know, a real-life serial killer. Now, when you were initially making the movie, um, in your mind, was one of your goals from the start to create a raw, grimy, almost subjective experience that was very different from your typical slasher film? Well, yes. Uh, Waleed Ali, the late Waleed Ali, gave, you know, one day, uh, quite out of the blue, uh, asked me to make a horror film for their company, and I'd been doing business with them for a number of years, working for them, actually. Uh, and offered me $100,000. So it was clear that, you know, you're not going to get spaceships and monsters from outer space and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one thing I think uh, filmmakers make a big mistake, uh, young filmmakers, when they get their first, you know, however much money, they go out and try and compete with <laughs> with the studios or with, you know, independent, you know, they got $100,000 and they try and make a, a teen comedy that, you know, even though teen comedies aren't expensive to make, uh, by Warner Brothers, they're still going to spend $18 million. So, you know, and then they just look, wind up looking like a cheap imitation of something, uh, you know, that they're trying that they're trying to imitate. Sure. Um, where with Henry, it was like, okay, you get one chance to make a first film, and we want to make something that no one will ever forget and seem to be have been successful since it's being, re- you know, it's been in continuous release for 30 years. Uh so I sat with Richard Fire, who I brought, you know, he was referred to me by Steve Jones, who is my producer to this day. And he knew Richard. I did not. And Richard, <laughs> Richard was a man of the theater. And he sort of wasn't sure he wanted to do something so low as an exploitation, uh, well, you know, film. But 
he elevated it. And, you know, at first he was kind of ashamed that he was involved in such a thing. And then later, of course, like with many of people that were in the, I watched many actors over the years that I would see them come in, you know, when they first made Henry, it didn't, they, before they saw it, they didn't put it on their uh, resume. It was considered, you know, trash. (laughs) And then I'd watch over the years as Henry climbed up (laughs) onto their resume. And then by, you know, a few years later, it was the first thing on their resume. Uh, But anyway, Richard, and I decided, well, what's the idea of a horror film? I mean, I'm just not that scared by most horror films because there's, you know, the thing that protects you is fantasy. It's like, yeah. okay, yeah, that was fun. I was scared. I guess I, I avoid uh, jump scares like the plague itself. I, other people can do it and do it well. I don't care. I don't care to do that. Uh, so the idea was let's redefine the horror film. You know, if words lose their meaning and you know horror film comes to mean a certain thing but it isn't necessarily you know you're you, to me you're leaving out the most horrific thing of all true human behavior you're you know you're you're relying on fantasy and fantasy is a, makes a safe space so when you walk out after you've seen freddy or jason or whomever you know they're not really waiting out there you i mean people a lot of people were really worried about leaving the theater after seeing henry uh <laughs> So that was the idea. Let's remove the fantasy. You know, first, the first thing we're going to do is take out the fantasy. And second of all, we're going to just drop you into this world as if you're sitting in the chair in a corner over there. Uh, that's going to be the shooting style. And uh, so that was the idea. You as a viewer is dropped in. And I'm not going to make your moral judgments for you. You make your own. That is incredibly original and very smart approach and it becomes it affects you more on a psychological level mainly because you're experiencing the psychological um, conflict at times because even you know throughout it seems like you, you know because serial killers are often portrayed as being like Hannibal Lecter smart and talented without morality but there's something about Michael Rooker's portrayal that shows a real sense of internal conflict that maybe he doesn't want to be who he is, but he ultimately lacks control to do what he does. And like, I sense almost like a sadness when he's looking into the motel bathroom mirror, like he doesn't want to do what he's about to do, but knows that there's no way that Becky can accompany him. I, I got to imagine what was it like casting Michael Rooker for this role? Because it sort of defined him, you know, for, 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 for probably ever. Um, when he walked into the room, what was your first thought? Well, it's before he walked into the room, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's at the true. door as I opened it. But, uh, you know, we were looking for a Henry, and we'd, we had Becky, we had uh, Otis. Uh, they had both come from the organic theater, Stuart Gordon's company that Richard Fire was a writer and actor in. They, the, the company had just broken up, and uh, they were all looking for work. Uh, Michael Rooker had not been part of it. No, you know, Michael Rooker has, was not a known quantity in the, in the Chicago theater scene uh, like the others were. And uh, we had a makeup artist because we were working away in the script. And like I say, we'd cast, you know, a number of the roles. Didn't have Henry. Saw a young man from the Chicago theater who had some small success, but he was young and good looking and he was very full of himself. We offered him the role and he turned it down. It was beneath him. I've hmm. never heard from him again. He's had no career, uh, so 
his loss. Yeah, no kidding. My name. And then we had another guy who was a wonderful actor who brought some real, you know, chops to it, but he was older and he wasn't really physically a, a hot number, you know. So the relationship would have had to have been changed between he and Becky from a romantic, from a romance to more of a father-son dynamic. But we were just about ready to hire this man. And then our makeup guy, the guy we hired to start uh, doing this prosthetics and stuff, had worked in theater in Chicago. And he says, I know this actor. You know, I worked with him in a play. Uh, uh, you, you should meet him. And I said, okay. And Richard, <laughs> Richard Fire really didn't like this makeup guy very much. And he just said, no, I, I don't, you know, he didn't, anything this guy suggested, Richard's answer was no. Uh, so I said, well, Richard, what do we got to lose? We haven't found the perfect, you know, it was sort of, life isn't perfect. We haven't found the perfect Henry, but we're going to have to find someone who can act and, and do the best we can. Uh, and that's that. And, but I said, you know, I said, come on, Richard, we, we got nothing to lose. Let's see who this guy is. And uh, so anyway, we're sitting at the table where we wrote in his apartment, knock at the door. I got up because I was closer to the door and opened the door. And there stood Michael wearing the identical clothes he wears in the movie. Oh. I mean, had to accept. The only thing we ch- we changed was his shoes. And I mean, my jaw literally hit the floor. Uh, there was Henry. You know, I mean, it's just like sent by God. Uh, if God is interested in such <laughs> telling this kind of story, I don't know. But it was like, and again, I've said, I've told this story ten thousand times. But I said a prayer. Oh God, please let him be able to act. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> physically, the, here he is. This is yeah. him. Done deal. And he came in and he spent about a half hour with us. And Michael was very unpolished <laughs> in those days. He was a few years from out of Jasper, Alabama, uh, and then had a rough life. Uh, but he was a brilliant guy, and in many ways. And you know, I just said. You know, Richard said, well, you know, this, I go, Richard, stop. <laughs> this is, if I ever knew anything in my life, you know, and so Michael left, you know, he was done and he left after, and Richard lived in a high rise. So I waited, I was listening for the elevator to make sure that uh, Michael was gone and out of earshot. And I immediately grabbed the phone, picked it up and I called Lisa Dedman, who was our line producer. And I said, book this guy. I don't care what it takes. He's going to be a movie star. Wow. Good instincts there, man. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it was like some things in life are pretty obvious. You know, being from the south side of Chicago, my dad especially was able to spot certain locales that kind of look familiar, but, you know, shooting yep. Chicago in something like John Hughes's movies, you see, like, a lot of the touristy, obvious places. Well, but, John Hughes was, a, you know, he's a North, North Shore yeah, guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you, you kind of utilize the kind of environments that, like, another great director I've talked with, Andrew Davis, would use in his films. 
So, Andrew Davis is from the South Side. Yeah, yeah. I get, I, so I see <laughs> I connection there. I know Andrew there. Davis, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, shooting Henry, did you just sort of opt to shoot wherever you could, wherever it looked best because you had this low-budget approach? And what was it like in trying to secure permits if you had to during that time? Well, yeah, I had studied still. I had studied uh, television production and still photography at Columbia College. Right. And before that, I studied art at University of Illinois. And as I often tell people, I didn't go to film school. I went to art school. So to me, making you know, this is my medium. Uh, it's you know, Henry is not. I don't classify it as entertainment. I classify it as a work of art, which makes it hard to work in Hollywood. <laughs> they don't want people making works of art. They want people making entertainment, which is absolutely fine but anyway i had done a lot of still photography and uh, you know i grew up the, the streets of chicago is just an incredibly photogenic city yeah and i don't mean it's necessarily you know i i publish on my uh, facebook page a lot of photographs I'm, i really you know i don't make that many phone calls but uh, you know in my laptop i have thirty five thousand photos i've taken on my iphone i love my iphone <laughs> yeah <laughs> as a same. camera yeah and the city is, you know, and I, I published some couple of photographs from like the South, you know, the Hegwish or Hammond or some, you know, those places which, were, which are endlessly photogenic to me. And I go, Chicago's the most photogenic city I know. And somebody wrote in, have you ever been to Paris? And it's like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, many times, you know, I've been to Paris and it's beautiful and it's 10 times and 100 times more beautiful than Chicago, but it isn't more photogenic. Chicago just, you know, like I say, I, um, you can just hold your camera up, close your eyes, hit the shutter, and look and go, oh, look at that. Yeah. It's, it's an, you know, it's got, it's just so, so anyway, I've been taking street photographs for years. And I knew, you know, I had picked all these, someday if I were to make a movie, <laughs> this would be great for this, and that would be great for that. You know, and uh, there was a scene of Michael fishing out on the, uh, the rocks on the 103rd Street Beach where we used to go to the beach as kids. Uh, we cut that scene, but it was, you know, on the Skyway. You know, one of the when he's driving in, you know, he's up on the Skyway. Right. Uh, yeah. On the way to Indiana. So yes, there were so many places that I already knew, and then some. We, you know, we, like interestingly, I was at the screening of the uh, at uh, the film festival the other night, and a guy comes up. And told me what city he's from, and it's town, really, on the Illinois-Wisconsin uh, border, where that that end scene motel, Sunset Motel. And I'd never been there before. I don't know how we found that. But he said it's still there, which I was happy to hear. And uh, So, you know, uh, locations were very cheap because there was almost nothing shooting in Chicago. And the one time we actually did, I mean, we called the, the cops uh, early on. And they said, you know, just to clear things. And they said, listen, what, what is your budget again? We said $100,000. They said, listen, you know, if you're going to be anywhere where there's traffic, call us and let us know so we don't, you know, we, someone doesn't, uh, you know, arrest you or whatever. And we'll make sure that the, that the officers on duty know you're there and they'll leave you alone. And uh, otherwise, you know, just go make your little movie and we won't bother you. <laughs> but we did one day have to... For, we had a, a for, for whatever reason we we chose the corner of Oak and Michigan Avenues, which is you know one of the more prominent intersections in the city of Chicago, yeah. and we needed to close it down because that's where Henry and Otis were cruising around with the camera. I don't know why we chose there, 
uh, I guess we wanted them in, in, you know, the high end part of the city. Uh, and so we did, we, it cost us $110, as I remember, to rent a cop with a car, one cop with one car for the day. And he actually shut down the inner the corner of Oak and Michigan Avenue numerous times over the course of the couple hours that we were there. Uh, you know, it's like shooting, you know, it's like shutting down Times Square for a hundred dollars. You know, I mean, it was pretty amazing. So you couldn't do it today. Yeah. It's funny. Cause that, that drive, I always had this idea in my head of, you know, cause he throws the camcorder out the window I always um, imagined another movie sort of branching off, like a spin-off movie of somebody finding the, cassette, the the video cassette tape, and it's not completely destroyed, and they take it home and they watch it, and then <laughs> you know, it's like I just imagine this whole other movie branching out just from that split-second decision to throw the camcorder out the window. <laughs> well, Even it could have been, look- you know, I mean, it could could be, yeah, you could that could have been how they uh, brought the cops into the thing. Yeah, uh, that's true. And that would have been I mean, there, you know, we were often criticized uh, for not having the cops in the movie. Uh, that yeah. you couldn't do that. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, yes, we can. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I just, I got to ask, though, because it's something that will forever stay with me. I mean, a lot of people cite certain images from a lot of classic horror films, but that... That home invasion sequence is just something that I'll I'll never forget, and any time I rewatch it, I get the exact same feeling I get when I first saw it when I was twelve, and just completely freaked out. I think it's just it puts you in a, a very voyeuristic position, um, and that alone well, uh, is chilling. Yeah. Well, the initial intent was, you know, violence is entertainment. We we sort of uh, compare and contrast. There's the early scene with uh, Ray Atherton gets a TV over the head. Right. And so in comes Henry and Otis, and you know who they are, and you know they're murdering, you know, bastards, and the, to, not people to, to, to toy with. And this guy, Ray Atherton, he's, he's big and nasty looking and unsavory, and he's rude, and he starts giving them a hard time. And you know what's coming. And, you know, and because he's, he's such a sleazy character, you are given, uh, you know, a pass to wish him dead uh, <laughs> and and to root for, you know, uh, what yeah. happens. Let's oh, go get him, Henry. This guy's got it coming. And it happens. And it was fun. And it's funny. Uh, and it's violence as entertainment. It's like, this is what you're used to. You know, Rambo. Oh, these bad guys. Good. Shoot them. You know, shoot them. Shoot the hell out of them. Blow them to bits. Uh, kill them all. And wow, that was fun. It's like, okay, and maybe this is what it looks like to murder a real innocent family. And how much fun was that? And not only, I mean, I was, the initial idea was for us as filmmakers to implicate all of us for hmm. entertaining you with violence, to gratify you with, you know, m- murder and mayhem and blood. And then, but in the real world, it probably looks more like this. And how do you like that? And, but the way we, you know, we chose to cut it was to, to, to reveal the footage. You think you're seeing it as it's happening, but then the camera starts pulling back from the footage and you realize you're not seeing the viewfinder. You're seeing the TV. And you're sitting right there with Henry and Otis watching this as your entertainment. And then it's one of those moments. It's like, it's like the moment you realize that Henry is the good guy in the movie. It's like, oh, it's very uncomfortable to realize that this is what I do. I sit here and entertain myself with this horror, true horror, 
And again, when we shot, we shot two takes of that scene, <laughs> and and there was literally no crew. There was one guy, wow. and uh, and the cinematographer. But Michael shot the first half of it till the camera dropped, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, after we cut on the second take, uh, it was clear that that was the one. And I just looked at every you know everyone in the room, and I said, none of us are going to heaven after shooting this scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. It'll, it'll forever be um, one of those moments in film history that uh, cemented itself into my subconscious, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, but no, I'm, I actually mean that as a compliment because it, it's truly one of the more effective sequences. And I, but the whole movie, it, it really holds up beautifully. Um, so are there any projects that you have coming up that you can talk about? I know... Um, you've worked with the great Bill Murray twice now. And three times. I, three yeah. Times. Oh, three times. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've loved all the films you made with him, of course. Is there something you might be working on with him in the future, I've read? Yeah. We've been working on a project for eight years together. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, that's how easy it is to get indie films made today. You've got Bill Murray. You know, usually Bill won't come into a project until it's funded and cast so that you can't use him as bait for money and actors. Right. Uh, you know, but this was a script he uh, he got a hold of through Linda, the actress Linda Cardellini gave it to him. Oh. And huh. he liked it. He wanted to produce it. And so he called me to direct it. And I read it and I said, yeah, I like it. And I still like it. Uh, and we've been working on it for eight years. Uh, and, we, you know, Bill is set to play, you know, there's one role very specifically written for Bill, a, a lawyer, criminal lawyer. Oh, uh, good. Another and, lawyer. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it'll be the third lawyer he, he's played yeah hopefully and uh you know it's not easy so you got bill murray you got linda cardellini and linda cardellini's thought of more as a tv actress but she's a damn good actress oh yeah she's uh, she's very underrated and, uh, you know I, i've liked her since freaks yeah. and geeks so <laughs> yeah she's really a, a, you know a really good actress a really gifted actress anyway and it's interesting. She was, you know, there's a young boy, there's a young, two young kids and they become counterfeiters. They're, they start the movie at about age 17. And then there's a time jump to where they come up around 25, 26 years old. So the actors have to be able to, you know, play both ages. Uh, and Linda, when we started this project, it'll be nine years in February. Uh, Linda was going to play the girl. Now she's playing the mother. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, it's hard. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to work with Bill again. So, and hopefully will. Yeah, that'd be great. I certainly, you know, I know our time is limited here, but I'm just a huge fan. Uh, you know, Mad Dog and Glory, Normal Life, Wild Things, and even the the yeah, Harvest. Luke, Luke Perry just turned fifty. Right. He, he, he was on the cover of the AARP uh, magazine. <laughs> I know. Uh, someone that's just crazy. sent that to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for spending time with me to talk about your incredible work. I mean, I've, I've rewatched a lot of your films, always find something new to cherish about each of them. And you've made one of the more deeply disturbing films that I'm surprised I didn't immediately go into therapy um, when I was 12. <laughs> but I mean that, of course, as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, you know, again, people, when we had the whole MPAA thing, I wasn't the first one to say, I, you know, I don't think. People under 13 should see this movie. And I don't know about 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds either. But, uh, you know, but adults, yes. So, yeah, well, anyway. 
Thank you, Cable, for <laughs> allowing me to see that at probably too young of an age. But uh, I truly feel you're you're one of the best directors to emerge from Chicago, John. And please continue to work. All right. Thank you, sir. Take care. Mike left his handprint on the knife. Confessed. He said. I did it. But I knew enough about the last just to know that Mike had a defense. My dad was always threatening me. That's who he was. My husband could be exceptionally cruel. It feels so one-sided. Is it possible he's not saying what really happened? Well, I don't know what you think you know. Did Mike see and hear your husband hit you? Yes. What if Mike didn't stab his father? I have to defend him without knowing all the facts. How do we know any of it happened? Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations on the uh, new film. Really thought... It was a step above a lot of the other modern-day courtroom dramas. Um, We'll get into specifics in a minute here. Um, I'm also a huge fan of your breakout success, Frozen River, with with an incredible performance from Melissa Leo, of course. And I hope if, if people haven't seen that yet, especially for fans of Winter's Bone or the work of Kelly Reichardt, they they should go back and see that film, too, because it's really special. Um, but yeah, let's talk the whole truth, of course. Um, I've been itching to see your follow-up for quite some time and glad that I have. Uh, I understand that you have a law degree and started out working for your husband, and I'm guessing your interest in the world of criminal justice has appealed to you before you even went to film school, of course, but did you sort of set out to make a courtroom drama simply based on your past experience and your expertise or what inspired you to tell this particular story? Well, I resisted the idea of it because I thought usually courtroom dramas I find to be quite boring. I I don't like being trapped in a room. I don't think it's essentially cinematic. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, the verdict was great. But um, so I don't love them. So when um, the writer and the producers came to me to to do it, I wouldn't read it for a while because I was like, I'm not going to like that. And then I did read it, and I did like it. And the reason is because in the in the unpacking of this story, we're dealing with some of the most interesting issues for criminal defense attorneys in, that, that exist. Sure. One of them is how do you deal with your own morality when you're dealing with legalities um, and trying to represent someone? Where do you p- put your own morality? Do you stick it in your pocket? Do you forget about it? Do you try to integrate it? We're also dealing with the other big event. I've done a lot of trials, and I've also done murder appeals where I would transcribe the facts of the case, and you'd see the different points of view, how different people remember the same event. So in this movie, you, uh, you're unpacking people's subjective memories, mm. the little bits and pieces they have of memories, and this fragmentation that we have in our mind of oh, I I remember it that way, or wait, no, that's not what he said, and three people remember it three different ways. To me, that's an interesting way, because I think when you come to a trial, all you have are the people's memories. You're dealing with memory completely. And to me, that's really the essential piece of it. And then, of course, there's the performance of, you know, there's the performance of the attorney, and then the performance of Keanu Reeves playing the attorney, yeah. and all the stress involved of representing someone that could go to jail. It doesn't sound so big because we, we have so much courtroom stuff on TV. There's so much of it. But I never find it has the ring of truth. 
And so this, to me, had the ring of truth because I believe that the situation could and would and has happened all the way to the last frame of the movie. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I mean, initially, I wasn't sure what... Like with the editing, I wasn't sure if you're going for like a Rashomon kind of feel in terms of are we getting it from different points of view. But I just thought the rhythm of the editing was especially great, uh, in, including the the first act. I think it ha- like I said, it has a rhythm to it. Obviously, we have um, the narration to guide us. But I loved how the depositions or testimonies would be intercut with the past events, so you get that perspective in mind as you're watching it. And I've always found the subjectivity of memory to be a great theme to uh, explore. But I was curious about the editing. Was it written that way to where you are jumping back and forth in time, or was that something that was worked out in the editing room during post-production? Um, to a large degree, it was written in that way, mm-hmm. and that's what attracted me to it, because sure. I loved the way it unraveled um, the story. But uh, then there were some key decisions we had to make in editing. We had to decide how long to stay with flashbacks, like how much do you need? Yeah. When can you cut out? And is it better to go on the side of, wait, did I just see what I thought I saw? Or is it better to kind of spell it out? In general, we picked the more impressionistic type of uh, flashes and so that we, we would trim those down um, to the absolute minimal that, minimum that we needed um, to just keep the story moving because it was really about establishing a quick pace Yeah. Um, and keeping people going, wait, whoa, whoa, what did I see? Okay, wait, now we're here. All right, now we're <laughs> over here. And to keep people moving because that's how it feels in a trial. And I wanted to replicate that feeling. Um, you know, one witness says it one way, another witness completely contradicts them. And you're like, okay, who the hell do I believe? And the jury has to decide this. So we're, in, a, in effect, the jury. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it, you sort of um, tackle the themes that we would see in an earlier film, something like 12 Angry Men, where people have different perspectives and different interpretations of the events. Even though they're being described the same event, they're seeing it differently based on their own personal experience. And I thought you brought that to this film beautifully. Um, And I also, you know, Keanu Reeves, I know he was brought on late in the game, but I've always found him to be an engaging screen presence. I know he kind of gets a bad rep, but he shouldn't, because I've liked him all the way going back to something like Permanent Record when he was young. I'm curious to know how he felt playing a conflicted character to some degree like this, and I guess the same goes for Jim Belushi, who genuinely surprised me throughout this film, too. Yeah, well... Keanu was on the film sooner than you think. Like, we had a kind of a blip at the beginning, and then he was on a month before, when at least six weeks before when we were in New Orleans. So we did a lot of prep. Okay. And I wanted him to live with this duality, and he was very willing. He's very perfectionistic and unbelievably committed. So we went to a murder trial together oh. and watched from the back row, hoping they wouldn't recognize that Keanu Reeves was in the room. <laughs> and they kind of... The people in the courthouse did, but the people in the courtroom were too traumatized by, you know, by what they were dealing with to really pay much attention. So we were able to watch in an unfettered way, um, in an uncensored way, to see how the, everyone behaved and what the, the sort of sadness of it was. And he was committed completely to doing that. And we talked endlessly about 
what is the lawyer feeling right now? What is the lawyer doing right now? Now, why would the lawyer do this? Like, he had a jillion questions. Now, he's played a lawyer before, of course, years ago in The Devil's Advocate. Right. And this is him as, like, a seasoned lawyer, which was so fun. That, that arc is kind of cool. And he, but he is, I think, sim, I, I won't say, I don't think he's duly appreciated for yeah, his talent. I agree. And he has an incredible screen presence, and he knows it, and he can use it, and he's reached a skill level that's just very sophisticated at this point. He's just, and he's incredibly committed in a very soulful way. He's very soulful in this movie, um, in a soulful way that you know not everybody can bring to a character. Yeah, he brings a lot of depth and dimension to this character, um, despite having to be a little mysterious or at least hiding his emotions because you know he doesn't want to he, he has a good poker face <laughs> and kind of have to i would i would presume being a lawyer um but yeah i just and, and again you know casting someone like jim belushi too it has to be oh yes really special <laughs> well he wanted the part and we we kept we were looking for a boon and boon is like you know not that nice of a guy yeah to say the least and so and he he wanted to do it and he said, no, you definitely, I can definitely be that person. I'm like, yeah, but you're so funny. You know, and I really wasn't buying it very much for a while. And he said, no, I promise you. And he explained to me and spelled it out. And I was like, okay. And I think it, he was one of the happiest surprises of the movie. Yeah, I in bet. His, did he, in his darkness. Did he lower, lower the register of his voice at some points? Because it seemed like... He just his voice had been altered to some degree. I don't know if that's something he saw. Funny you say that. It's he was very committed. Like he really embraced it completely, and he did everything to just be Boone. And he decided how Boone was going to talk, and how Boone was going to walk, and how Boone was going to, you know, grab hold of his wife and whatnot. And that was all him. Wow. He just really worked on the character. He's a much finer actor than people realize. Yeah, no, especially. I'm, I would love to see him do more work like this and more dramas in the future. Um, yeah. So, so obviously, without giving anything away, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on movies that sort of rely on the twist as a bit of a like gimmick. Because for here, the the reveals are more than just surprises to make the audience rethink what they've seen. Although that kind of happens, I think the reveals add to the multi-layered performances from the cast and also comment on human nature as well as the fallibility of the criminal justice system too. So what did you do to set out to make sure this film isn't reliant on a gotcha kind of, you know, like sixth sense kind of moment? Well, I think that it deals with it. It questions our morality and it asks us to question our own morality. How far would you go? Where does it stop? You know, if you see something bad going on, can you intervene? Can you not intervene? What's, what are appropriate, you know, boundary, moral boundaries? And like we were reading Brothers Karamazov during the, like, oh. the post-production. Okay. And that's sort of similar kind of, now obviously it's Dostoevsky, so that's a big deal. But I'm not saying we're there, but I'm just saying we looked at morality and how it plays out in the reality of kind of affluent culture. And we thought about, um, at, a, at a given moment, what would you be willing to do? What would you not be willing to do? So to me, as opposed to a thriller that's got a lot of tricks in it, instead of tricks, we really wind it all the way down to where you know it ends up, and the moral question remains. 
yeah. but it ends up with one person, and it ends up on one person's head. And so that, to me, gives it um, a merit, because it's really asking us, and we're sort of in that person's point of view by then, and that's the only point of view we haven't seen until the very end. We never go in that person's head until the very, very <laughs> end. We're in everybody else's head. So to me, it was like we kind of boil it down to the very essence of it and leave a moral question, which is maybe somewhat, which is kind of satisfying on the one hand and troubling on another hand. Yeah, that's that's kind of the feeling I got from it because, um, you know, well, it's one of those movies, too, that you can't explain too much off the top because... Uh, but it's one of those that you want to talk with other people about the moment it's over, and you wind up thinking about it like on the car ride home quite a bit, just because of what it, what the implications are, and what it's trying to say philosophically, and like you mentioned with morality too. So I think it's it works in that level especially. And I know you've talked about this before, but I guess it warrants mentioning due to the, to the political climate that we are in. Because I personally happen to respond to a lot of work by female directors like Claire Denis or Andrea Arnold recently, too. Do, I mean, unfortunately, they don't always have the kind of mainstream crossover success that I feel is deserved. Uh, so what kind of challenges do you face or feel oh. should be addressed when it comes to women working in a predominantly male-centric industry? I think it's a, it's a slow burn. We get there slowly mm. by some people sort of putting their voices out there. I think the more we're writing stuff, and I think the comedians are finding this. Yeah. They're writing their own stuff, and they're saying, no, we want to do it this way. And we're, we wrote it, so we own more control of it. I think that as we author things more and more and push them forward to higher and higher budget levels, and the industry, which is just a money sort of you know, a, a money-based industry is going to be like, oh, you're making money? You're making money? We, you can do more of that. Yeah. I think it comes down to money. Yeah. And I think it comes down to who has the money. And I don't think there's any sinister conspiracy afoot. I don't think they want people to band together to keep women out or anything like that. I think it's a matter of custom, culture, um, what we're used to, who we're used to seeing in charge just on the set level, and also the ability to trust people to bring in enough money, you know, this is a very expensive industry in a lot of ways, um, and to have women step into those roles, we're just going to have to push our way in and then prove our merit and then get more and more and more powerful in that world. And it's just a slow, slow process because it's, it's not that people are in boardrooms saying, I don't like her because she's a she. <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure I can trust her and I don't think I know her or feel as familiar with her as I do with him. Right. Because he looks yeah. more like me and he sounds like me and we can go watch the football game together and whatever. So it's just a matter of familiarity, but it's changing. It's definitely changing. And like I'm in the room with lots, I get hired by men all the time. And I, you know, I, I am in the room with lots of men who, you know, don't necessarily identify with me on everything, but I can talk to them. You know, it's, a, it's also a matter of women learning to talk to them in a language they can understand. Well, those are all great points. Um, okay, so yeah, I hope. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, I I responded to that quite a bit because I just, like I said, there's just so much great art. And I mentioned Kelly Reichardt earlier, too. She's one of my favorite filmmakers. And, you know, based on 
Frozen River, I was just like, oh my gosh, when is her next movie coming? And I'm so glad it's here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so based on your love of the book Northline, I actually read that a few years back and really thought it was terrific and something I could see you adapting quite well. Is that something that we can expect or are there any projects that you have in mind to attempt in the near future? Yeah, I have a bunch and I can't say anything about any of them and I oh, feel I understand. awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I can't I understand say a flippin' that. word. Yeah. Well, I'm excited well, I'm for excited. whatever you got cooking. Thank you. Yeah, There'll so. be more than I'm writing. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, I was. I, I think I even mentioned this to a couple of friends. I was skeptical about going into the world of lawyers and courtrooms. I just wanted to wrap it up sorry. by saying, yeah. you know, you made an incredibly compelling and original take on the courtroom drama and i really hope audiences respond to it as favorably as they did for your debut yeah i, I can't wait to see where your career goes and i will continue continue to be a huge fan of yours so thank you for your time and talking today with me courtney well, thank you so much i appreciate it singing helps me relax maybe you want to try it i don't sing and i don't relax this is the way i am and i like it i also like a little silence Darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I Excellent. How are you? So this is this voice is Mike Mitchell, and this is Walt Dorn. Great. Good day to you, gentlemen. I'm very excited to talk with you today. Um, I'm actually a huge fan of animation, of course, but I I also go back to uh, Sky High quite often and enjoy it yeah. more and more each time. I know. Why don't they make a sequel to that thing? That's such a fun. That was such a fun movie to make. Right. <laughs> That's so cool. In yeah. fact, a lot of those. In fact, uh, the kid uh, Nick Braun, who played the Glow Kid, came to our premiere. He's oh, friends sweet. With, uh, yeah, he's friends with uh, Christopher Mitzplatt, who plays uh, the King. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead sure made a great career for herself. She's kind of like the new Scream Queen. <laughs> I know she's working all the time, isn't she? It's so cool. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, you're you're both you know very well accomplished within the animation industry, and I'd like to give the uh, listeners. Uh, sort of an idea of how you first became involved with uh, th this franchise, which you know is mainly aimed at the youngsters. But I'm just curious to uh, know what made you want to develop a story for the world of the trolls, and what are the benefits to telling a story uh, using animation? Well, here, here's the uh, here's what got us really excited about it is all we had was this little figure, this little stumpy limbed figure with a big shock of colorful hair but nothing else really it was pretty much a blank slate and i think that's what was so exciting there was no characters there's no mythology no right. world established so it was a chance for us to create our own unique world yeah. which is really exciting i think for artists and we could make our own rules and uh and our own own world and so that was a yeah it was a really it was a really interesting challenge for us and then it was also an opportunity to make a film not just for kids but for, like, ourselves and sure. for parents. Because, like, we like to go to the movies with our kids, and, um, and it's always fun to uh, enjoy 
what you're watching as well. Yeah, but we all, you know, from making the Shrek movies, I mean, we always approach these films that we make it for everyone, and that's our favorite challenge. Yeah, to make, a, like, a dad laugh, and he looks down at his eight-year-old daughter, and she's laughing at, like, the same jokes that he's laughing but at. But for a different reason. Maybe for a different reason. <laughs> I'm, uh, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I, I sense you guys are a fan of, you know, being a little irreverent with, you know, the sense of humor and, yeah, making it accessible, like you mentioned, for any any age. And I think you do that very successfully. Thank um, you. Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of mentioned the challenge early, early on here, but did you face any other challenges, either in pre-production or at any point that kind of had you guys concerned? Because I know it took you about three years to complete this project, yeah. so I imagine there were hurdles along the way. There were. I mean, these always take three years to make. But, um, sure. you know, well, one of the big things is when we started, since we got to create our own world, we really wanted to make this handmade world. And with our production designer, Kendall Cronkite, who's a total genius, yeah. came up with this idea that the entire world is, you know, felted, essentially, you know, that it has this really unique tactile feel to it. And so that was kind of a challenge. They had to find a whole new way of, like, how to render this movie. You know, how do we accomplish this? Yeah, we also, uh, um, technical-wise, like, we knew that the hair was going to be a challenge because the hair on these trolls are, like, their superpower. They could change its color. They could change the shape. They could stretch it out. They could swing, like, use it like a monkey's tail and swing around. We knew that would be a challenge. But then it turned out, strangely enough, that the biggest challenge for effects-wise with glitter. With glitter. Oh. And uh, we got a lot of glitter in our film. And um, The computer just didn't understand glitter, funny enough. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't know how to party. We had a whole... Computer. yeah. <laughs> Computers aren't our partiers. And we had to get a whole glitter... We called... Walt and I called it our glitter task force. Got together and really had... And to be fair, we really did complicated stuff with glitter. We covered... Some of these trolls are naked, but covered head to troll and glit... Head to toe in glitter and they look like walking disco balls so it's really really complicated <laughs> stuff that uh, we had to work through yeah i mean yeah. Well, the technology, technology available for animated filmmaking has become more sophisticated and photorealistic than ever and i think you know you guys managed to utilize just these very colorful visuals with kind of the sensibilities of miyazaki um what what is the process like when sitting in front of a computer really to make it all come together and come alive. Well, it's interesting you say that because we did, like, use the technology in a different way because, you know, you can't get photoreal in these movies, but instead of photorealistic skin, we use the technology to go another way. Like, our trolls are like gummy bears that have been flocked in velvet. And instead of a photorealistic tree, we use the technology to, um, what's it called, C uh, cover it? With, yeah, surface it. Uh, surface it in, like, all natural materials, like felt and the ground instead of grass is carpet. And we really wanted to do that because to give it this, this handmade feel. I mean, that was underneath all of our decisions in crafting the world. Is that We wanted to feel like it was handcrafted. Yeah, Walt and I, I mean, our early, when we were first working on this, and, and you know, we make the film and screen it for the people working on it all the time in a theater at DreamWorks, one of the things everyone notices is like, it, it says, "Wow, it just looks like like a, just a group of group of friends are making this film. Like it seems so intimate and real." And like making it in the garage, and to us that was a compliment. So we spent the next three years really trying to retain that kind of that energy and the handmade feel, the intimate of the film. And then uh, yeah, so it was really it was really a fun challenge to do, and and we were inspired. Well, one of one of the things I was inspired by is I used to work at the Scout, Tim Burton's. Studio Skellington. Oh sure, yeah. Uh, 
with our production designer, and we did Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach, and everything was like handmade there. We wanted to bring that into the CGI world, but we're also, Walt and I were also inspired by, it's so crazy that you said Miyazaki. Are you a fan of Miyazaki? Oh, yeah, 100%. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's our favorite yeah, too. too. It's just insane that you brought that up because we really wanted to do that fairy tale world that Miyazaki creates with all those strange creatures. Kind of supernatural and ethereal. Yeah, yeah. and we wanted to do that. And what happens if you put, inspired by that, and actually a show that our friends work on called Adventure Time, we wanted to take those two elements and, like, what if you put that into a gigantic CGI DreamWorks film? I think that is a very successful marriage because I happen to love uh, Adventure Time too, and I could I could see the sense of humor of that world fitting into the world of the trolls for sure. Yeah, and there's also there's a little bit you know I also I'm a big fan of stop animation, but there's also a little bit of Muppets. Yeah. There's also the Dr. Seuss books that that um, I love everything he's ever written, and then and then with that like with. Not to get ahead of two things too much, but you know, with the the creative kind of pop cultural worlds we wanted to mash together. Underneath it all, we really kept asking ourselves, like, what's this movie about? Yeah. And so we really kind of honed in on we wanted to tell the story of happiness and where does happiness come from and mm-hmm. how do you get it and what happens if you lose it? Yeah, it's weird just because um, I don't I don't know if you'd agree with me, but all the news, not just for kids but for adults, is like really scary and depressing and, and and this wacky election that's coming up is so silly yeah. and you know the, the internet itself is oftentimes really judgmental and negative and so we just wanted to, we, so we started to research um do you ever look at ted talks do you ever watch those things oh yeah i'm yeah. a big fan of those too yeah, so we were watching ted talks about yeah. happiness there was a great harvard study i think it's been going on for like four decades oh, about yeah. the of happiness um, and so we, we started from that point and really wanted to explore happiness and come up with a theme of happiness and get people talking about happiness. And, and so, you know, not only do we want to transport you to another world, this psychedelic world that you've never been to, but we also, and, you know, we want to, all the irreverent humor, but the movie also needs to be about something and grounded in this kind of, these heavy themes. Yeah, have some emotional moments to it, you know, without just being silly, trippy, well, colorful. I think, well, I think you them both. I think that the jokes are funnier if the movie is more emotionally resonant. You're right. Yeah, and that's that's exactly how I felt about Inside Out. Right. Very. Yeah. Very similar. That had a lot of like really interesting things to say about emotions. Right. Yeah, and I I definitely found myself pretty moved by the use of Cyndi Lauper's True Colors, and I really enjoyed Lionel Richie's ballad Hello, sung by Zoe Deschanel. I thought that was yeah. a delight. How, how, does the, how does the cast decide who gets to sing which songs? Are they like assigned to specific people, or? Uh, unfortunately for them, it is story dictated. So it was like us just crafting the story and writing the story. And that was one of the complex things about using kind of classic songs. Even though you know we did bring in Justin Timberlake, and you know he wrote songs specifically for story moments. Yeah, he wrote "Can't Stop the Feeling." You're talking about a challenge. That was a challenge. <laughs> we couldn't find a way to end our. To, uh, we had an ending, but it seemed like uh, Anna Kendrick's character was just kind of talking too much and explaining stuff. And Justin said, I-, I could help you guys just wrap it up with a song. And he wrote that song for us, Can't Stop the Feeling. And it just happened to become a, a gigantic hit. But that was, he crafted that for our film. It was really neat. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, most He's one of the most talented songwriters songwriter. working today. For Who sure. knew? This yeah. guy could carry a tune. And a super funny guy because uh, yeah. we really 
we really got to be playful with him in the studio because Mike and I are in the booth with the actors and we're improvising lines and keeping it really playful, especially around the comedy. Yeah, Walt's an amazing actor. He plays Cloud Guy. Do you remember that guy? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So that's Walt's voice. So we're really fortunate. Usually the actors aren't all in the same room together, but because of Justin as our music producer, um, all, the cast really came together in a, in a weird way. And, and again, like, like Walt said, we just we barge into the recording studio with them and we really play around and have fun. I think that energy comes off on the screen. I hope it does. Oh, it, it definitely does. Cool. Yeah, so I'm just curious from each of you if you could adapt like another franchise or a toy or anything that's yet to be explored. What what do you think it would be? What would you like to see put into this kind of animation feel? Well, I'd like to just keep exploring this world. I think that sure. would be really cool. And then also, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, and I've been developing that. <sighs> yeah, lately. that would be so I think that's a really great. great one. That'd be so great. Well, dragons are all the rage right now, so that's a good idea. There's definitely more uh, trolls characters and more troll universe because we just tapped the surface, you know, since there was this opportunity to create a world that's never existed. We have this whole kind of slew of characters we haven't even met yet. Also, Walt and I have worked on so many franchises, like um, like um, from uh, SpongeBob, SpongeBob, the Chipmunks. Like, I feel that we've become kind of experts in franchises, and now we're really excited to start creating some franchises ourselves. That's a great idea, and you're doing creating an original vision, but also uh, maintaining like the, the kind of sense of humor that you would expect, you know, and that would take place in this world. So I, I really think it's going to be a big hit. I, I truly do. I hope so. Thank you so much, man. That means a lot to us because you know it's it's so exciting now to take this film out and show it to people, and it really seems like everyone's having this super positive reaction. Good. And I'm shocked that it's it's mostly. It's two things are shocking to me. One that it's a lot of college kids are getting into this from the ages between like 16 and 20 are going nuts for this film and I don't know why that is. I don't know what's in the water there. But also I'm really excited that it seems like guys like it. Like it's it's, yeah. it's yeah. men it's, and men as well as women are always our intent. Again, we said, you know, we make movies for everyone and that's always our goal setting out. So it's nice to see that we're really getting this great reaction now. Yeah, and I think a lot of that could stem, too, from just the sensibility of, like, the Lego movie and how that was a huge hit with every right. age Right. In fact, you know what? Those guys, they're friends of ours. They came and gave us notes on this film. They were oh, really nice. nice. Yeah, yeah they are so busy, but they came in and, and they watched one of our earlier screenings, and, uh, and we're always showing it to our friends and asking, asking for notes, and it was, uh, it was really cool that they took the time for us. Well, that's great to hear. I really, really hope this is a, a huge success for you guys, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me today for the podcast. Um, it was really great just to hear a different side of the filmmaking process. And Thanks again. You're Thanks awesome. For You're so professional. You make this so easy. It went so fast, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, time flies when you're having fun, right? Cool. <laughs> Got it. Thanks, man. Okay. Take care. Thanks a lot.
Holy cow, indeed, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this spectacular interview extravaganza with John McNaughton, Courtney Hunt, Walt Dorm, and Mike Mitchell. Uh, the Trolls directors there. That was a lot of fun to talk to those guys. They, they were clearly enthusiastic about their film. And uh, Courtney Hunt put out a very good courtroom drama. And uh, what can you say about John McNaughton, right? So I hope to be doing more of these types of episodes in the future. I can't wait to share those with you when they happen. Please visit popcultureclub.net, the Now Playing Network, of course, nowplayingnetwork.net, for a wide variety of great film and music content there at your disposal. So go to nowplayingnetwork.net, and uh, I'll be in touch very soon with some exciting news. Thanks again, everybody, and have a great day. Bye-bye.